Amen. All right. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of things going on here, a lot of like peoples and a lot of places and um, not everything in there we have to kind of know all the details about. And we'll kind of talk about it as we go. But really what the story is about is weakness. It's about weakness. Everyone, uh, every one of us has weaknesses and all of us are prone to hide those weaknesses. No one wants to put our weaknesses on display. That just doesn't feel right. That means each one of us at times will feel to be an imposter. Because we hide the weakness, and then the person that we're known for is not really our true selves because we know we're really not you know, showing who we are. We all feel the imposter. You know, we feel like, oh, I'm not really that talented. I'm not really that strong, especially in church. I don't really, I'm not really that faithful. I'm not really that religious or spiritual. This means we think we have to deal with our weaknesses alone. And that really separates us from each other. How tragic that we all feel this way, and many people don't talk about it. How tragic is that? We're all in the same boat together, but none of us are really kind of talking about the problem. Even more tragic is missing out on how God uses us despite our weaknesses. Like he's actually working through you oftentimes in our weaknesses, and to miss out on that is also a tragedy. Or even, and that's kind of what we see in this story. We see that God uses us in our weakness. It's not that we have to make ourselves great, and then all of a sudden uh, God will use us. It's the fact that in our weaknesses, God really uses us. So if you... If you feel like you're weak, if you feel like you're an imposter, if you feel like you don't have everything all together, congratulations, welcome to being a human. Also, this is everybody in the room. We're, we're all this way. And this, is, this story is really, really good news for us because of that. And that's what I want to kind of get into with weakness today. Um, let's first talk about the background of all those words that we just read. So the Israelites did evil. They were oppressed, as we're beginning to see this kind of the cycle of judges. Israelites forget the Lord. The Lord leads them to be oppressed by others so that they would cry out to him. And they do, even if they're worshiping other gods, like we saw in the story. Um, now, Yahweh, the God, the Lord of the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, it, who rescued them from slavery and oppression in the past, he's their only hope. But he's also their only hope kind of going forward, yet they're not giving their attention to him. They're not giving their attention to him. And that's what he really wants. He wants them to look at him. And Gideon, he gets commissioned from the Lord. Now, does Gideon believe him? Not really. In fact, like Gideon like only is forced into believing him and forced into like doing the things that God's telling him to do. We'll get to that in a bit. He has quite a weak faith, but he's very polite. He knows religious language, and maybe that's what gets him by. But his faith is weak. He asks, really? Is it really, God, are you really who you say you are? And, he, and then when God says, yes, 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 he's like, well, how about a sign? And then God comes through on the signs like, how about two signs? And God comes through two signs. It's kind of like a, someone with weak faith kind of stumbling forward. He's told to take down an altar to a god called Baal, or um, maybe pronounced in the way the Hebrew is written is like Baal, although I don't want to say Baal because that makes me, I don't know, it sounds weird. Baal is the normal way we can say it. Um, and then an Asherah, Asherah pole next to it. So Baal was a god different from the pole, the Asherah pole. Um, those are two kind of altars to do different kinds of gods. An Asherah pole would be um, kind of like a tree with all the limbs cut off, carved into what shall we say, like a rude shape up top. It's a fertility god. I think you get the idea of what Asherah poles look like. This is a way to, to worship a fertility god. Gideon had to destroy these things, and he does, even though it's under the cover night because he's scared, um, and maybe rightfully so because people want to kill him afterwards. But in the morning, uh, the townspeople want to kill him and thank God for Gideon's father because he wins the mob over to his side. If it wasn't for his father, maybe Gideon would be killed. But instead, Gideon gets a cool name, Jeroboam, which basically means like Baal destroyer, like 
Baal Crusher, like God Killer. That's, that's like Viking kind of name. It's kind of cool. So God then tells Gideon that he will lead an army to deliver Israel. And Gideon's like, really? Are you sure about that, Lord? Because I'm the weakest person in my family who's the weakest clan, who's the weakest tribe, who's of this weak nation, Israel. He gives all the excuses. So God gave Gideon the certainty, though, that he needed. Even in all the excuses that Gideon's trying to give, God gave Gideon all the certainty that he needed. And, um, and then Gideon was able to organize the army to attack those oppressive Midianites who were basically enslaving Israel. But as the, as the Israelite army goes to attack the, their fierce um, competitors, the, the Midianites, the army's too big. And so they send uh, people home, there's 20,000, and send other people home, send other people home. So now there's an army of 300 against this serious army of the Midianites. And God says the reason why he's done that is not so Israel would boast, but so that Israel would understand all the times God working through them, and they would be boasting in the Lord. They'd be happy about what God had done for them. So, this story highlights the weakness of humanity. Oftentimes, when, when we hear these kind of what might be on the surface, like hero stories in the Old Testament, like, man, what strong people? Like, no, they're pretty weak, and they're pretty bad, and they're pretty lame. And what we find is there's the weakness of humanity is on display. But even despite the weakness of humanity, God's power, God's grace, God's love still continues to work through those weak people who don't deserve it. And this is kind of where we find our lives. We may not be leading an army. That's probably a good thing. I would love to hear that story if you are. Um, But whatever God has called you to, whatever kind of specific calling God has called you to, you're too weak for it by yourself. And God loves to work through that because it puts him and his love on display, not only in the situation, but also more in your life. So um, we'll uh, just talk about maybe these parts of uh, how we're made, which is weak. We're all in this together. We're all weak. So here's three things we're going to look at in Judges. Um, first one, because we're weak, we don't believe. The second one is because we're weak, uh, we're fearful. And the third one is God uses our weakness to display his power. So because we're weak, we don't believe. Because we're weak, we're fearful. But God uses weakness. And thank God for that. So let's look at this first one. Because we're weak, we don't believe. Specifically here, uh, we don't believe God's words. This is Gideon's weakness on display, not believing God's words. How many times does God tell Gideon something and Gideon's response is basically like, are you sure, God? You know, because I don't know if you know what I know. I know how weak I am. Maybe you're not quite sure. Look at verse 11 in chapter 6. Uh, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the, I mean, an angel of the Lord is coming to sit down. Like, this is a kind of a big deal. And uh, uh, Gideon um, is getting this kind of weird, kind of non-typical visitor. It's not a human, some kind of angelic being. And this angelic being is talking to Gideon. And, so, and this angelic being is so strong and powerful that it's basically completely associated with who God is. If you notice, sometimes it says, the angel of the Lord said to Gideon, and then sometimes it says, the Lord said to Gideon, because the angel of the Lord is basically God's mouthpiece. This is speaking to Gideon himself. It seems that Gideon's disbelief, in one sense, shields him from realizing who this being actually is and who this being actually stands for. Gideon just can't believe it. Gideon's weakness blinds him to God's words to him and to God's specific calling. So, um, And this happens again, too, when he's told to destroy the altar and the Asherah pole. He, Gideon eventually does it. He's kind of like forced into doing it, even though it's not clear that Gideon truly believes the words that God is telling him because he does it under the cover of night, super scared, kind of does it, but only just. And ultimately, though, what we see... Um, 
thankfully Gideon did follow through. Ultimately, we see is God's place of worship reinstituted and altars of worship of other kind of foreign gods are destroyed. So that's with words. Another thing that Gideon does and that we do as well is not believe God's words and ask for some kind of sign. We think that's a sign of maturity. This is a sign of immaturity, asking for a sign. Now, you might have heard the whole, if you've been around the church, um, depending on what kind of church background you have, you might have heard like the fleece of Gideon being like a good thing, like a positive thing or something about faith. It's not really about faith at all. It's actually about lack of faith of what's going on here. Um, In Gideon's weakness, he doesn't believe God's words and asks for God to give him a sign to prove himself as if, you know, God needs to do such a thing. Let's look, for example, um, if you have your Bible or, or your, um, your judge's book. Look in 612. Well, it says, uh, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Two verses later, God sends Gideon to save Israel from their oppression. And it's, uh, from their oppression. It's clear in the text. And it's clear to Gideon. If you look at verse 36, this is Gideon talking to God. Basically says, if you will save Israel by my hand as you've promised. So Gideon already knows that God has promised to save him, to save Israel through his hands. Gideon already knows this. If you, and, and Gideon already knows that God has promised this. Basically saying, God, like, God, if you're telling the truth, then won't you do this and this? Like, of course God is telling the truth. So uh, if this is really true, Gideon's saying, then prove yourself by making this piece of wet wool when the ground is dry. So God does it. That one sign, though, that one sign is not good enough. So Gideon asks God for another one. It's like, okay, well, maybe it's easier to make the wool wet. So maybe I'll, do, I'll reverse it and see if that, what happens there. And God says, okay, so if God, if you're like really, really, really being truthful, not just sort of truthful, being really, really truthful, then do this other sign for me. And God condescends to Gideon's level and humbleness and, and does the thing. Now, of course, Gideon is polite. Pardon me, sorry, don't be offended, God. Of course, he's very polite. He's kind. Lord, please, Lord, don't be angry with me. But God has already told him what he's going to do. God has already told him how he's going to do it. Gideon is just not believing it. So he's asking for more. And the spirit of the Lord is already upon Gideon, already empowering him for the task that he needs to do. We talked about spirit of the Lord, I think, in the uh, last week. And all this stuff is already happening, and Gideon is still with his fear, with his lack of faith, um, asking God to do more. He wants a sign. Then he wants another sign. See, Gideon's weakness prevents him from believing God's words to him and prevents him from fully accepting the call that God has on his life. It takes him a while to get there. Now, another example of this is when Gideon moves to attack uh, the Midianites. This isn't just like a one-off for Gideon. Like, oh, maybe he learned his lesson and he moved on. No, it actually happens again. So in um, verse 9 of chapter 7, uh, it says, During that night the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I'm going to give it into your hands. That's pretty cut and dry. I'm going to give it into your hands. Get up, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to do it. Don't worry, Gideon. It's not you doing it. It's me doing it. But, God knows Gideon, but if you're afraid, take your friend with you and go down to this enemy camp. And then you'll hear something there, and that will convince you beyond kind of all shadow of a doubt. And so, hilariously, the next verse is, so Gideon went with his friend, because of course Gideon's afraid. Like, it's not a question of, oh, I wonder if I'm afraid. No, Gideon's, of course, he's trembling. He's scared as anything. So Gideon brought his friend, because he's fearful, down to the camp. He overheard some random person with some random dream and some random interpretation. And that is what gives Gideon the certainty that he needs. Not the voice from God himself. These voices from some other kind of random people who don't even worship the same God. 
are, are, kind of, are even getting the certainty that he needs. This is not an example of someone with lots of faith. This is an example of someone barely making it, 51%, going back and forth between 49% and 51%. And when he hears the dream, though, and he hears the interpretation, he's satisfied, and uh, then he kind of mo- moves on to do it. Now, God didn't have to do any of that. God, God could have just said, you know what, Gideon, you're not good enough. Next, I'll pick somebody else who actually believes in me. Because Gideon really doesn't kind of believe in God mostly. But, so don't make the mistake, though, and think that because God allowed these other signs and these other things to happen, that that's the normal way that God will interact with us today. Because what this is an example of is someone not believing and God humbly kind of, in his humility, condescending to that person. The normal way for us to know what God has said to us, it's the same thing for Gideon. God speaks to us. God speaks to us, and it could not be easier. Imagine if God had a book with all the words about him in here, and we could just read it like ourselves whenever we wanted to, or bring it up on our phones or whatever. This is how God speaks to us. And in prayer, like we could talk to God whenever. That is how God speaks to us. Taking God's word as he says it, being able to believe it, even if it's difficult, because it is difficult, it's difficult for everybody, that is what maturity looks like. And that also frees us from having to like seek a sign in every single little thing and to try and, um, you know, try and divine you know, the tea leaves and, and our experiences. It's like, oh, what's God really trying to say? Um, I know what he's really trying to say because I'll just read this and he'll tell me. I mean, there was one time um, where Christina and I went to Disney World with my mom, my stepdad, and my brother. Christina's going to love this story at home. Um, now, I love my family, but good map readers, we are not. We're not very good at reading maps. Uh, Christina will be happy that I'm admitting that in front of everybody. This is like an AA meeting. Hi, I'm Greg. I'm not good at reading maps. Okay, it's out there. Hi, Greg. No, don't say it too loud because COVID. Um, so uh, there my mom and stepdad are. They're, uh, they have the map in front of them. And they're looking around for the castle. If you've ever been to Disney World in Orlando, the castle, you, can't, you literally can't miss it. Like It's there all the time. It's the highest thing you know, probably miles around. And they're over here like, oh, I wonder where the castle is. Can, can you help us where the castle, like random passerbys, like, do you know where the castle is? Like asking all these questions where the map is literally in front of them and you can see the castle in front. The map would be like one big red arrow. There it is. And they're refusing to look at the map. And I remember Christine and I just in the background being like, just look at the map. <laughs> it's the same thing for us. Just look at the map. Like when we have questions about what does God really want me to do? Okay, he may not give you the specific thing of he wants you to show up 15 minutes to work early on Wednesday in order to talk to this person. But all the things that we really need for a life of faith, they're all in here. They're, they're all in here. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to love all of them. It's going to be difficult. It doesn't mean that we're always going to understand it to begin with. It requires us to bring our whole, whole bodies and minds and souls too. But it is all in here. It's, it's a map for our lives and for what we need. And for us to kind of overlook it is just as ridiculous for my mom and stepdad to just kind of be wandering around Disney World, wondering where the castle is, when the map is literally in their hands. Now, because we're weak, we're not prone to believe what God says about himself. And what he says about us as his people, uh, and what he's called even to you to do specifically, but in, in all this, God is with us in everything, not just when you're good, not just when you've done the right thing that day, not just when you've read the Bible that day or not, or prayed that day or not, or were horrible to your partner or not. Like God is with us in all of our situations, in all of our weaknesses. 
when he's telling us to do something and we're like, really, God, are you sure? I think you're probably not right. You're probably a liar. Show me a sign. And he does, and we still, like, not, not, we still fail to believe him. And to his people, this is what God says, because of what Jesus has done. He says the same thing to Gideon that he says to us. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. You, mighty warrior. Even as I say those words, you're like, yeah, not me. I'm the least in my family. I'm the least in my clan. I'm the least in my small little tribe. He is with you, a mighty warrior. And that's what God says about you. That is true about you. Only you can share your story of how God is working in your life. Everyone here has specific calls that only you are called to. It's just kind of how it is. Only you have the relationships with people who are close to you. I don't have those relationships. I don't have those callings. I don't have those stories. God is using you to love these people in your life, to serve them well in ways that only you can do. And through what God is doing, you are a mighty warrior. As much as we try and disbelieve that and distance ourselves from that. Because if we truly did believe that, then that would actually call us to action into places of maybe where we're uncomfortable or where we're not in control, where we actually have to trust God to do what he's saying he's going to do. But because we're weak, we don't believe. Now, because we're weak, um, we also, we are fearful. We put fear over faith. And these two points go hand in hand, not believing and, and being uh, fearful. But let's drill down maybe a little bit more into our fear here. God calls Gideon that mighty warrior, but we do not see a typical mighty warrior story here. In fact, as we read the rest of the story, we see, like, actually, uh, Gideon is not really any kind of mighty warrior. He's a really weak one. But Gideon, despite his unbelief, despite his fear, is obedient. He does go. He destroys the altar, destroys the Asherah pole, and eventually, like, destroys the army of the Midianites. He's fearful, though, and so he brings his friend to the camp just to kind of double-check. He does all those things. And, just, and what happens here, the way that Gideon's army attacks uh, the Midianites, which we didn't get to read because there's a lot of words in there, um, is uh, he gathers all the people up, uh, his 300 people, and they blow trumpets, and they smash glasses, like mason jar kind of things. And that freaks the whole camp of the Midianites out, and they all kind of like start attacking each other and slashing each other with their own swords. Now, before we think like, ah, uh, ancient people, they were dumb. They just heard like a trumpet and they're like, ah, better start killing somebody. Or they hear like glass breaking. They're like, oh, I guess I don't know what to do. Should I kill someone? What, this is the reason why that worked and how kind of um, clever uh, God is with the plans. Because these were God's plans that he gave Gideon. To blow a tr- someone who blew a trumpet was like a captain in an army. So 300 people blowing trumpets would signal to an- another army that there's 300,000 people there because of all the the people that the captain would kind of be over. So now they look like a much bigger army than what they are, and smashing bottles or glasses or like kind of mason jar things would sound like swords clashing. So the Midianites, they're woken up from their sleep, they hear an army of 300,000 people attacking in their heads, and then they hear what sounds like swords clashing. And so they get up, it's dark, it's not like they have uniforms or anything, they're just like slashing people who are running around, and then they're like, oh, that guy's fighting me, I should fight him back. And so it just ends up being where they kind of fight each other, and then they run away because they're so scared, because there's this seemingly massive army against them. So that's how the kind of Gideon army wins in the end, through that kind of clever, through that clever thing. Um, now through all of this, even in Gideon's weak obedience, Gideon, um, first of all, memory has that cool name, Jared Ball, Baal, like God killer, God destroyer. So he gets a cool name. He's also, he's victorious in battle. Gideon didn't really deserve any of this. Like, he's just kind of barely following. We are weak beings, and that means we are, we can't help but be led by fear. We can't help by it if, if we're kind of on default. 
we let it get the best of us. And we think that if we are experiencing fear, that we're not spiritual enough or that we can't follow through. We think that if we experience fear, that we're not good enough, as if the Christian life is one without fear or like as if, you know, even the word bravery or courage, you can't be brave or courageous unless you're fearful because bravery, uh, living with, with courage is acting despite fear. So if there's no fear, then you don't have to worry about being brave. You'll never be brave if you're never fearful. They go hand in hand. So now, though, not only are we fearful because we don't believe all that and we think, oh, I shouldn't be fearful, now we're guilty as well. So if we weren't going to talk about our fears, we're surely not going to talk about our guilt about our fears, and we end up lonely in our own kind of weakness. That's not really an enjoyable way to live. So if you're fearful when God calls you to do something that you think you can't do, let Gideon be your guide here. Because you should be somewhat fearful that you can't do what God's called you to do. In fact, you can't by yourself. Only God can. And really, all you need, kind of like Gideon, it's just like 51%. I mean, it's a, it's a much en- more enjoyable life to be more than 51% in on your faith. But if that's what you have, even that in itself is enjoyable. That doesn't really take as much as we might think it takes. And maybe most of the Christian life is just that slight wavering between like 49% and 51%. Like, I won't do it, but I'm almost going to do it. Now I feel really guilty. Uh, and then like, oh, okay, fine, I'll do it. And then I'm forced to like, oh, you know, it was okay, but I'm still kind of fearful. That's kind of like really what's going on inside of us, though we present ourselves as you know, strong and not like that often. Again, sometimes we think someone who has courage or who is brave never experiences fear, but fear is a prereq to being brave, to being courageous. So in the Christian life, we don't find courage within ourselves, thankfully. We don't have to dig deep and find that passion within ourselves. That's a gift that God gives all of us. It's what we get by being connected to him. And by hearing these words from him, we need God telling us we're mighty warriors because we're never going to believe it by ourselves. We need to hear those words of God infiltrating our lives. And when we put fear over faith, we don't believe that God loves us. I mean, how could he? I'm so bad. I'm so fearful. God really doesn't want to be with me. He doesn't want to hang out with me. Fear over faith prevents us from taking risks. Fear over faith isn't going to be any kind of attractive thing that will win anybody over to anything. Fear over faith shapes our lives to be safe. Like when we moved from the UK to the US, um, that wasn't really a safe move. That wasn't, uh, on paper, it did not look intelligent. Uh, you, you could stay in America, live in a bigger house, have more stuff, make more money, have a retirement plan that's going to be nice, or you could go to the UK where things are all different, things are very much different. Um, I'm, we're not living in squalor, we're fine. But I mean, it's, it's, it's like, if we, live, if we live here, we know as a family, if we're going to live central to Charlton, and we believe we should as a, for our family because of the mission that God's given us, it means we're probably not going to ever be able to buy a house. That would be great if we could, but we're probably not going to be able to. And, and, you know, that's okay. If we were living out of a fear-based mentality, we'd find, what's the best way to shore up my future the quickest? It wouldn't be doing what we've done. <laughs> it's like you're going a bit, a bit of reverse. But, and that doesn't, putting faith over fear doesn't mean acting stupidly. Um, we need wisdom and grace as we come to these things. But it does mean sometimes you're going to take risks you wouldn't have normally. Putting faith over fear means believing that God has called you a mighty warrior and that God will actually work things out the way that he works things out. And that he has given you a calling to certain people. There are people in your life that you know, that you love, that you want them to know more about Jesus because you know of how great it is for you. Living by faith means believing that God loves you. 
like specifically, God actually loves you. That could be one of the most revolutionary things you'll hear all day or all week. God actually really loves you. And because he's eternal and infinite, he can spend an eternity just on you by yourself. How amazing is that? And he loves to do that. He's not strong-armed in doing it. He's not like, oh, I guess I've got to hang out with Greg. He loves actually hanging out with his people. It's what gives him joy. And that's what gives us joy. And so that means not leaning into the calling that this loving God has given us is not only uh, bad for the people that we're called to, it's also bad for us. Because we have a father who loves us more than anything, who's calling us to something that he knows is going to be for our good and for the good of others, even even if that means it's going to be uncomfortable, even if that means it's going to be scary. As God's people, we're called to live a life of faith over fear. So we may be weak, or maybe I should say, like, so we are weak, let's just say it. And that does lead us away from God's path and leads us down paths of unbelief and fear. But in all of this, God's at work. And all of this, God is at work. He doesn't require us to shed our weakness before coming to him. He uses it. And this is where we get the happy part of the message. God uses our weakness. Okay, yeah, we're fearful. Okay, yeah, we have this unbelief. And we don't really believe God's words. And we don't even believe even when he condescends to give us signs and all this kind of stuff. Even in all that, God still uses us. And if you think maybe I've been on, tough on Gideon, um, you can take that up with the writer of Judges because the writer of Judges does not present Gideon as you know, being some kind of hero. But this is actually where Gideon can be a positive figure for us. Not to emulate his weakness, but to kind of understand how God loves to work through weak people. So Baal's altar, it was destroyed, right? Gideon destroyed it. God's place of worship was reinstituted. Who has triumphed? God has. Wasn't that Gideon was amazing? But God was. Gideon leads people to victory over the Midianites. Who has triumphed? God has. It cannot be more clear in these stories of Gideon that God loves to use people who are weak. God loves to do that. He enjoys it. He like laughs to himself and to the world as they look at this weak person who's doing something they could never do outside of God's spirit upon them. It could not be more clear in these stories of Gideon that that's true. So if that's you, if you're sitting there, you're like, yeah, I'm a little bit maybe weaker than everyone else around me knows. This is great news because he's going to use you. In fact, he already is. I know that he is. He's already working. The question is, are we going to be attentive to where he is? And it's good, for, uh, it's good as well um, for you as well as the good of those around you and for God's love to be on display, not just to them, but for you as well. So God condescends to where we are. Every time that Gideon says, really, God? Like, is that really... What, what the deal is, um, God stays with him. God doesn't say, ah, oh, forget you, I'm moving on to somebody else. God stays with him, and he condescends to Gideon's level. God does not expect Gideon to raise himself up to God's level. I mean, that's, that's, that's the difference between religion and Christianity. Religion says you must raise yourself up to this level, and then you're okay. Where Christianity is, God is condescending to where you are, even in your non-okayness, and is working with you. And then before attacking the Midianites, um, God says, if you're afraid, I know you're going to be afraid, Gideon. If you're afraid, take your friend, go listen to this other like pagan nation's dream and the interpretation of that, and maybe that'll give you the certainty that you need. How remarkable is that that God humbles himself in that way? That is remarkable. And God knows us. He knows our weaknesses better than we do. What was Gideon's, uh, what was, was Gideon's response to surprise to God? God's like, oh, no, Gideon... He doesn't believe in me as much as I thought he did. Ah, what am I going to do? No, God chose Gideon just for that purpose, just for the purpose of his weakness. God will use you just for the purpose in your own weaknesses. 
this, in, two, in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, these are Jesus' words to Paul. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. A side benefit to living this way that Paul's talking about, that Gideon teaches us about, is that we can truly be honest with where we are. We don't have to hide ourselves. Like, yeah, I read my Bible once last month, and that was actually good. You know, we can actually, and be okay with it, <laughs> instead of trying to put some kind of spiritual facade on things. Because he knows who we are, and he still calls us to join him on his mission. And in our weakness, as God works, we see him as the deliverer. There's no hero stories here, except for the hero of God working through his people. Before the story really gets started, the Israelites who aren't even worshiping God, they're crying out to him, as they do in Judges over and over. God, we don't like this. We'll, won't you make things better? Uh, and Judges 6, 8 through 9 says, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. And when Gideon attacked the Midianites with the small army that he had, the reason was for God's character to be made known. 7.2 says, the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men, I can't deliver Midian to their hands, or Israel will boast against me, my own strength has saved me. Your own strength cannot save you. You're far more weak than you imagine, and your strength is not nearly as strong as you think. So the hero in Judges 6 and 7 is not Gideon. The hero is God. God uses you in your weakness, and weakness has a purpose. God uses it to draw us to himself. Oftentimes we use weakness as a way to keep God away, like, oh, maybe once I read my Bible more or you know, be more spiritual, whatever the thing might be, then maybe God will like me or I can talk to God again or something like that. And we try and remove our weaknesses as well. We try and fill up with any kind of lack. How many of us let the Lord use us in our weaknesses? Do we even know where we're weak? Do we even know where the Lord is at work within us? We probably are too busy to stop and even think about that or too scared. So Gideon says, I'm not good enough. God says, yep, I know, I am. God to us says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. We use our weakness to keep God away, not to enter into what he's called us into. I can't talk to my friend about Jesus, I'm not good enough. There'll be a question they'll ask and I won't know it and then I'll look like a fool and then they'll like hate Jesus forever, all because of me. You're not good enough, of course you aren't. Nobody expects you to. We all know that you're not. If, if, if you are known at all within Redeemer, all of us know you're not good enough. That's kind of, it's, there's no kind of surprise there. But don't use that excuse to not join in what God's called you to do. Don't use that as an excuse. You aren't good enough. I'm not good enough. God is more than enough. Always more than enough. God uses our weakness to display his power. And God loves to use weakness. And nowhere is that more apparent than in the life of Jesus. Almighty God, creator of the world, holding molecules together, comes down in like a form of a man who is weak and can be killed. What in the world is going on there? Christ on the cross. And that's God himself dying, slowly being tortured. How could God use that? Powerfully for his glory to rescue his people. That means the little weaknesses that you have now, the small little weaknesses that you're slightly aware of, if found in Jesus, can be used for his glory. In his death, Jesus condescended to the lowest depths by dying himself in the grave for three days. The absolute depths. He went to the darkest place that we could never go by ourselves because if we went there, we would never come back. Jesus went there and came back with new life. 
There is no place too dark for Christ. Nowhere is too far, is too far away. Nobody is too far off. Jesus has been further away than any of you ever have or ever will be. You can't surprise him with how bad you are. You can't escape and outrun him because Jesus knows us. He's walked in our shoes. He knows our pain. He knows our weaknesses. And not just theoretically. He literally knows what it's like to be a human. He still is a human now in human form, even in his resurrected body. And Jesus, in all of that, is our deliverer. He's the one we look to. He's the one who's worth getting up, masked up, and you know, sitting in all these kind of different places for. Through his death on the cross, he, went to de- he put to death the hold that weakness can have over us. Because we know that hold that weakness can have on us sometimes feels like a death grip. Jesus put that to death. And now Jesus is using that weakness that we have that used to hold us back. That weakness is now how God works in his world. How God's going to deliver his love to others. How God's going to deliver his grace to others. Through that very weakness that used to hold us back, now that makes us more alive. Now we're human beings more fully alive. Our fantastic ability to sabotage our own lives through our weakness over and over and over, that's put to death. And through his resurrection, now our weakness isn't something to be hidden. Now our weakness isn't something to be ashamed of. Now our weakness isn't something that we never talk about and kind of sweep under the rug. It's not something that holds us back. It's the channel of God's mercy to us when we see him working in our weakness. His love coming to us, and not just to us, but to others as that overflows. Because I know that God has a call in your life. I may not know what that call is for many of you, but he does have a call in your life. And through what Jesus has done, he has made you into a mighty warrior. Now, weakness has a purpose. God uses it to draw us closer to him. God uses our weakness for others to be drawn in as well. 2 Corinthians 13.4 says this, For to be sure, he, who is Jesus, was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, Yet by God's power, we will live with him. Living by God's power isn't always enjoyable or fun because we have to relinquish control. We have to surrender. Everyone has to kind of submit if they want to be able to enjoy this love. And when we look to ourselves, though, in this, all we see is weakness. But if we look to God, we get to bring that weakness to him and we see his love at work in our lives and the lives of other people we know. So a few uh, reflection questions before we pray. On this, and you can do this uh, kind of um, with yourself, or you know, maybe in a core group, or with somebody that um, you know you trust, or you can be honest with. First one is: How does accepting your fear over faith sabotage your faith? The second one is: How could moving forward in faith despite that fear be a good thing for us? And the third is: What might be a small step towards that change? If you don't have someone to talk about these questions with, um, you can contact me. Uh, basically, you can re- reply to any email that you get. I'm the only one who sees those emails. You can contact me. We can you know, see what we can do for a next step there. Because everyone should have someone they can talk about with those kind of difficult things. So let me pray 